0: I'm Pastor Philip Jackson, and this is the Married Now What podcast. Our goal is to provide young couples with the resources they need to build their lives on the truth of God's Word. We are so glad that you're here. Let's get to the lesson. Okay, we are making our way through different doctrines. We're going through a series where we're looking at the doctrines of the faith. This is the year of theology for us, the year of knowing God. If you didn't get a handout, grab one from the back of the room. Um, that'll help us navigate this. Uh, you know that we, we typically will pick a passage of Scripture and we're going to dig into it as deeply as possible. Since we are doing more theology this year, that means we're having to do more topical studies. Uh, so that means that we're not, we're not uh, going as deeply into one passage. We're kind of stepping back and taking a broader view of what Scripture says. And there's benefits of that. If you've ever done this before, we're... Um, Typically when we read the Bible, uh, we do it one or two chapters at a time or little pieces at a time. And usually that means that we get some really good study in one specific passage and we go really deep. Um, The challenge with that is sometimes we miss the overall context of how that passage fits into the chapter or into the book. And so to step back and to to do more of a survey can be helpful from time to time. Um, If you've never done this before, uh, one of the things that I love to do is... I've been studying the book of Hebrews a lot the last couple of months. Um, I will open up the YouVersion Bible app, and it will read it to you. Um, the ESV version is really helpful. I really like that. Uh, the guy um, who reads it has good voice inflection and is animated. Um, but to just sit down with the Bible in front of you and listen to the Scripture, uh, it, it allows you to be able to say, Oh, wait a second, he said this in this chapter, and he said this a couple of chapters later. And I've always missed that because I've always just been doing it one or two pages at a time. Um, So if you've never done that, I would highly encourage you to do that because it can help bring the Scripture to life for you. Um, So this morning, we are going to talk about the doctrine of the church. Um, America is different in a lot of ways from uh, the history of mankind because we have this this fierce individualism that kind of drives our culture. Everything is is individual, it's personal. We talk about personal dreams and goals and aspirations. What's different about our generation from previous generations of our tradition is that uh, up until a few hundred years ago, uh, everything that was connected to the people of faith was communal. We were all we were living and doing life as a community, and it wasn't like... Typically, the, the American Christian, they experience community in this way. They, they go to church, they talk to people for an hour or two, and then they go home, and they don't think about it for six days, and then they come back, and they spend about two hours with people and then they go home and they don't see people for six days and this repeats over and over again. And what happens is that that disconnects us from what God intended. God intended for us to be not have to have two separate lives, but to have one life with the people that we are legitimately chasing Jesus with. So what we're going to look at this morning is God's strategy for us to, to live and to thrive in an environment that He's created for our benefit. Okay. So we're going to start with point number one, that the church is led by Jesus. The church is led by Jesus. Um, this, this, Ephesians chapter 1, verses 22-23 20, through 23 says this. It says, And He put all things under His feet and gave Him as head over all things to the church, which is His body, the fullness of Him who fills all in all. He's talking about Jesus. That Jesus is the head of everything, especially the church. Scripture teaches us that Jesus is the one who is in charge of all of creation. He's the one that made everything. He's the one that fixed everything through His death. He's the one who will reign supreme at the end of everything. So Jesus is not just the master of everything. He's the head of the church. But that also implies that He is part of the body. Romans 8, if you remember, we, we, as we read Romans chapter 8, it says that we are co-heirs with Christ, that we share in His glory, and we participate with Him in, in, in spreading salvation to the world as His children. So the idea that that Jesus is not disconnected from us, he is a a crucial key part of what we do. The second thing about him leading the church is that he is the head of the church because he gave his life for her. Jesus is credible uh, as the leader of the church because he has paid the ultimate sacrifice. Ephesians 5 talks about the picture of marriage and unity within the body, and it describes uh, this relationship between husbands, husbands and wives through the symbolism, through the example of Jesus' relationship with the church. It says this in Ephesians 5, beginning in verse 22, it says, "...Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her." "...that He might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the Word, so that He might present the church to Himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish." What what Paul is saying in Ephesians 5 is that Jesus, He is not only a credible advocate for us because He's lived a human life and because He has died on the cross for us, but because He has shown a, a pure devotion to us first. Because one of the things about human nature is that we will not follow someone we don't trust. Jesus has proven that He's trustworthy, not just by what He has done, but how He has stewarded the whole process along the way. So the, there's, there's a lot of lessons here for us at marriage in Ephesians 5. We don't have time for it this morning. But the simple reality is this, that Jesus, He, he sacrificed Himself for us in an, an expression of His own humility and grace. So that we can fully trust him. His motives are trustworthy. One of the things that we've got to ask ourselves is that, you know, it, it's a pretty common thing in our generation. There's a deconstruction movement happening where people are, they're they're using, um, in essence, situations where, where <coughs> broken, sinful hurt people have hurt them in their past, and they use that to justify being separate from God's people. It's the old phrase that hurt people, hurt people. But the challenge is that they associate that event, that memory, with Jesus. And they say, because this person hurt me, therefore I'm going to turn my back on Jesus's family, essentially. So you got to ask the question, can you love Jesus and insult His bride? Because Scripture tells us that they are one and the same. So if you, if you came to me and you're like, man, you know, Philip, I love you. You're, you're my best friend. This is awesome. But Lindsay drives me nuts. I hate her guts. She's the worst. She's poisonous. She accuses me. She she said these horrible things to me. She's she. All, I guarantee you, we're going to be throwing hands pretty quick. Do you see how in our generation we have this we have this this underlying um, apostasy that says, you know what? I love Jesus. He's my bro. But when it comes to the church, I'm out. It's the exact same concept. Because Scripture says that the body, the church, is something that Jesus takes personally. So when we are not just our attitude towards the church, but whenever we are talking about the church, when we're talking about our family, we need to be striving for unity, in the words of Paul. The author of our study, Mary Wiley, she makes a point about being led by Jesus and how that means that we should be committed to serving, encouraging, challenging, and sanctifying one another. So that brings up a question. Is this class known for those things? Are we known for being a people within the context of the people of Evergreen as being those who serve? When people come into our community and they begin to do life with us and then we get to know them and as we begin to build relationships with them and their children, do we have a reputation? When If I was to go to anybody in the church that's not in this class and ask them, what have you heard about the young marrieds at Evergreen, what would they say? Would they say that we have a genuine love for all the believers, that we serve each other well, that we, that we sanctify each other, that we challenge each other in our knowledge of the Word, that we're known as deep thinkers and real followers of Jesus? Or would they say something else? The church is led by Jesus, and as a result, it should re- reflect the character traits of Jesus. The second thing is that the church is the body of Christ. The church is the body of Christ. Romans twelve three through 5 says this. Uh, Paul is talking about in the context of renewing your mind and sacrificing your flesh. He says this, For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned, for as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ, and individually members of one another. In essence, what Paul is saying in Romans 12 is that the church is equipped for community. So you might think, well, how can I, how can I build relationships with people? There's, there, there, I have certain social limitations. Or you might think, how can I, how can I build this, this ideal Community around me. What does that look like for me? Well, I, the thing that, that scripture teaches us is that you have already been divinely gifted To the community that you're a part of So any perception that you have of your social limitations is moot It doesn't matter because essentially What scripture teaches us is that God gifts us me and the, the guys that are going through journey are, are going through this right now learning that God gifts us to the body in specific ways and by doing that, He teaches us, Hebrews 10 tells us, tells us that it compels us to love into good works. What that means is that by participating in what God is doing, by actually doing what He has gifted me to do, it compels me to love one another. Through that quantity time, I get quality time, and I fall in love with the people of God. On Friday, a couple of the guys helped me. We built a wheelchair ramp for one of our, our older members that her husband had a stroke on Tuesday and is coming home to die, essentially, for hospice. There's four of us there, all different ages, all different stages of life. And this, this woman comes out that we're building the ramp for, and she had got us donuts and made us coffee and, and gave Johnny these giant ice cubes for his drink that were like the size of Texas. It was crazy, didn't fit in the cup. But we had this moment where we, we screwed some pieces of plywood together, and we laughed for a couple of hours, and we met a very practical need. Well, guess what? Now, not only are we bonded to each other, now we're bonded to her. What God has done is He is He is knitting us together. I was talking to my dad. He's teaching from Ephesians uh, upstairs right now. And he said that the, the, the word that's used for uh, joined in Scripture can also be used to describe a ligament that holds the body together. That God weaves us together into one functional unit. So, the, so God has equipped us. He's, he's equipped us for community. The second thing about being the body of Christ is that the church is displaying the gospel. Ephesians 2 says this. It says, For, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not a, your own doing. Again, there's, there's the divine enablement. It's not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are His workmanship, key word, workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, there it is again, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. In other words, what happened was when God said, okay, I'm going to bring this, all of these, these different people together through the grace and the blood of Jesus, He said, this has been the strategy from the beginning. It has never been an individualistic thing. Our faith has never been a siloed faith. God never intended ever for His people to walk in isolation. That means that, you know, the, you probably have heard, you're, you probably, I can hear my, my mother and my grandmother in the back of my mind. Oh, it's Sunday. we got to go to church. We need to go to church. We need to go to church. And when I was young, I thought, well, this is just so rigid. Why, would, why do I have to go to church? Because my faith is, is, is not legalistic. My faith is my own, right? But now I realize as I'm, as I'm getting older and my children are growing up and I'm beginning to see the lives of people as they wrestle with real serious things, I realize that when I'm isolated dangerous for me a crucial piece of my sanctification happens when i'm with god's people when he says we are his workmanship created in in christ jesus for good works there's only one other place that that word is used in the bible and it's in romans 120 and it says for his individual individual sorry for his invisible attributes namely his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made, believe it or not, that's you. When he says in Romans 1.20 that that the things that have been made, <coughs> they clearly preach God's uh, his power, his divine nature, his attributes, his he, his 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 uh, sovereignty. You are the primary loudspeaker that God uses. To teach others about the gospel, and guess what—that happens in our community. We've been created for these good works on purpose to show these things. So the church is the body of Christ. One of the things that I've 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 been thinking about the last couple of days is that since we're God's, since we're Christ's body, and since he since we participate with him in the in ministry, what that means is that. Uh, He's with us whenever we do ministry. And ministry doesn't mean just going feeding the homeless or going talking to people who need Jesus who aren't saved. Ministry means seeing someone who is in need in our community and meeting that need. A practical thing that we experience all the time in this this class are the births of children. Pretty much all of you have experienced the difficulty of the post-birth weeks. Okay, we got to figure out what we're going to do for dinner. We got to figure out what we're going to, how we're going to do laundry. All of the laundry. There's so much laundry, right? We got to do all these things. Well, imagine what is it, What is a really easy way for us to be able to love on each other and to be able to serve each other to take a little bit of that load off? Meal trains. Thank you, Johnny, to make a bonus dinner. You know what? I don't know how long we had been married when I realized that it doesn't take a whole lot to throw another box of pasta in the in the pot or to, to, to make a double batch of stew or soup, to take that and give it to somebody else to help them take that little burden off their plate. This is a very practical way that we live out this calling to be the hands and feet of Jesus, to be His workmanship created for good works. So when you see all the meal trains, it seems like there's been a lot of them lately. When you see the baby showers and things like that, know that this is not about doing another thing. This is a practical way that God teaches us to see other people as more important than ourselves. Very simple way that we learn to love people. The third thing is that that the church um, displays the worship and character, sorry, the worship and character of the church displays this aspect of of God's nature. Um, Worship, according to Romans 12, is sacrificing what we want. (coughs) Worship is sacrificing what we want. In the, in the verses ahead of what we had just read in Romans 12, verse 3, verse one, verses 1 and 2 says this, "...I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect." You know, there is a, uh, a question that I, I've been answering for several years now working with young adults is, what's God's will? What is God's will? What is God's will? What is God's will? Well, it turns out, God's will, Jesus tells us in Matthew 6, to not worry about tomorrow. He tells us to not worry about yesterday. He tells us to focus on today. So if that's the case, that means that this, this worldly perception that God's will will be discovered in the future is not true. God's will is found in only one place, and that's in the present moment. John 15.5 tells us that we're supposed to abide in Christ. Well, how do we do that? Well, abiding in Christ means surrendering every moment of every day to be obedient to His will. So that means that these inconveniences that pop up. Well, my friend, okay, inconvenience like, oh, well, the, the light turned red and I need to get to work. That's an inconvenience. Well, maybe the Lord actually wants you to slow down. Or maybe, you know, I've got all these things going, oh, my friend, I told him I'd go to coffee, and I've already made these plans, I don't want to go, this, that, whatever. Maybe God wants you to prioritize the present relationships. Maybe the things that we have planned for the future need to give way to what He's called us to do today. Worship is one of those things that is determined uh, by our level of sacrifice. But the problem, he says, he says in, in Romans 12, verse 2, that we should be, uh, or verse 1, that we should be living sacrifices. Have you ever wondered why he uses the term living sacrifices? Well, I had a seminary professor say one time that the problem with a living sacrifice is that it's always crawling off the altar. That we have to continually prioritize sacrificing our own priorities for what God has told us to do. The church is inconvenient. Relationships are inconvenient. Friendships are inconvenient. But what you serve, you will learn to love. Those of you who have been married for some time have realized this, that your level of connection to your spouse is directly proportionate to your level of service for your spouse. And if you haven't figured that out yet and you're wondering why your marriage is in trouble, that's why. Jesus says, you learn to love what you serve. So what you choose to serve is what you will eventually love. If you choose to serve your work, you will love your work. If you choose to serve your family, you will love your family. If you choose to serve your friends and your community, God will cultivate within you a love for your community. One of the benefits of being a pastor, especially to this group of people, is that we were uh, were upstairs touring the new space. And several of our couples, we were all up there together, we're laughing and the kids are running around being crazy and getting dirty and being ornery. And we got in the car to drive home and I told Lindsay, I said, you know, it's the coolest thing that as we spend more time with our people that God gives me more and more of a heart for our people. I have really grown to love all of you. And it's not because I sat down and said, I'm gonna love them now. It's because each of us have had little moments where we have grown in moments of need to love each other—that's how we build a community, and that's God's design. This worship. The second thing about this is that worship is life on life. Acts two verses twenty-two through forty-seven, or forty-two through forty-seven, says this. This is the beginning of the church. It had just exploded. There's thousands of people in the community, and they're trying to figure out what they're supposed to do. And naturally, the Holy Spirit takes takes hold. Beginning of verse forty-two, it says, "And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to and to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day attending to the attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with gladness and generous hearts." praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Worship doesn't just look like singing a song on a Sunday morning. Worship looks like sitting down at somebody's house and having dinner. Worship looks like someone going having a baby and needing their yard mode in the summertime. Worship looks like going out of your way to make someone dinner to bring it to them, even though they might still seem to be strangers to you. Worship means living life on life. The last thing is that worship is bound to hope. Hebrews 10 23-25 says this, he says, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. The day drawing near is Jesus' return. In other words, what's implied by Scripture is that things are going to get worse the longer this goes. So that means that community will become more important the closer we get to Jesus' return. So as things get worse, we need to double down. We need to realize that as, as our lives get hotter and things get more tense and we get more stressed and all those things, that's not a time to duck out of community. That's actually when we need to lean into community. You probably have already had the situation where you think, man, the kids are a mess. This is insane. This this has been a, not a restful Sunday, and I don't want to go to life group. But I'm telling you right now, that's exactly the moment that you need to go to Life Group. Because you need those people. Because if you've experienced, you've, you've, you've committed yourself to the community, so you show up and on the way home, you always say, you know what, I'm really glad that we did that. I'm really glad that we had dinner with those people. I'm really glad that we went out of our way to do this thing. Because God has made you to do these things. Worship is bound to hope. We build hope by being together and serving together. The fourth thing is that the church is at war. This is where things are going to get dangerous. The first thing is that uh, first element of this is that we are all under attack by the enemy of God. We are all under attack by the enemy of God. First Peter 5, 8 and 9 says this. It says, Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. That last part, that last verse that this is being experienced by our brotherhood around the world, it implies that the hunting is not individual. Satan is not hunting us individually. He's hunting the community together. So what does that mean? You watch a nature show and which antelope gets eaten first? It's the one that's off by itself. The sickly one that's not taking care of itself and not being with the herd. By being a part of community, we are protected by being together. That's, That's a crucial element. The second part is that the culmination of Paul's teaching on unity in Ephesians 6, he tells us that the church is to remember that they are being hunted. This is the the, the part about the armor of God. He says, For we do not wrestle against the flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. So our enemies are not human beings. Our enemies... Are the enemies of God because we're His workmanship? He's putting us on display because this is how He tells the world about the gospel. After Paul describes all these spiritual tools that God's given us, He calls us to pray for one another. The end of chapter six in Ephesians, the end of chapter six in Ephesians says this: "says To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints, praying for all the saints." Now, if you've read the, the armor of God, chances are you think, "Oh, this is about me," but it's not. It's about the community. We all stand together in opposition to the enemy. You were not alone. You never were designed to be alone. And if you feel alone, that's a good indication that you're not where you're supposed to be. <coughs> the final thing here is that the church is distinctly missional. The church is broadcasting God's character to the world. 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 9 and 10 say this, But you were a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for His own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of Him who called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. What Peter is saying here is that God has uniquely pulled us out of the world and He has given us a cohesive family. You may think that before you knew Jesus that you had community, but the reality is Scripture says that you did not. You had no real connection to anybody when you were in your sin, before you were part of God's family. None. You were scattered around like a sheep without a shepherd. You had no, no real associations. And those of you who have been saved later in life, you realize this, that you have more in common with the people of God than you do with your own DNA. This is the truth. So he says, you are a royal and chosen people set aside on purpose for this divine blessing to tell the world about who God is and what he has done. Because the promise of salvation is not just that we avoid hell. One of the promises of salvation is that we have a family. Jesus said, those who choose me above their father and mother, I will restore them a hundredfold. I know that I have seen this testimony over and over again where people, they they come out of their pagan lives and they give their life to Jesus and they have fractured relationships only to find that in the body of Christ they have more intimacy, more connection than they've ever experienced ever before. God has designed us on purpose to work within a community because it's not just about going and telling people that Jesus this isn't a holy sales pitch. We authentically live our lives and as a result people go, man, you know what? I don't understand it. But but Philip and Johnny, they've got something different. I want that. Johnny and Daniel have something that I, I don't know what it is, but I want that. They've got some sort of a friendship that I don't understand. That's how people come to know Jesus. Jesus said that people will know you by your love for one another. So as we do this, we're we're evangelizing. Have you ever thought about when you bring someone a meal train that you're evangelizing? Have you ever thought about when you're meeting a practical need on mowing somebody's yard or building a wheelchair ramp that you are being missional? Evangelism is living your life in community. It's not making a sales pitch and knocking on the front door. The last thing I want you to see here is that the church is commanded to spread the gospel. Matthew 28, 19, and 10, this is known as the Great Commission. Now notice, this is not the Great Suggestion. This is the Great Commission. He says, Go, therefore, It's Jesus talking, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. We have to understand that God has not just suggested that we be in community, He's not just implied that it's a good part of our life, that we should make it a priority. He has commanded us to be in community. That means that when we, when we sit down and we make the decision about whether or not we're gonna duck out of being a part of what God's doing, we are living in rebellion against Him. When you think that, that being dedicated to a church body is a suggestion for you, that's like saying, you know what, I understand that I need to be faithful to my wife, but, you know, I don't really feel like it today. Do you realize how absurd that sounds? God has commanded us to not just take part, but to be an integral contribution to what he's doing. The point of this this whole lesson, the point of this doctrine, is for us to understand the church is God's primary strategy to evangelize the world. It is his primary strategy to teach us how to be like Jesus. It's the primary strategy to make us less selfish. Why does this matter? The doctrine of the church teaches us that community is God's primary way to make us like him, to protect us from the enemy, and to spread the gospel to the lost. And the, th- the honestly, just as a bonus, we get to build real relationships with people. And if someone has hurt you in the past that was wearing the name of Jesus, and you carry that with you, and it keeps you at an arm's distance from God's people, I want to apologize to you because that was not an accurate represent- representation of what God has intended. Real relationship happens in the church, the church is not a building. The church is a people, and if we obey what God says, we will we will realize that this is actually the sweetest way that we can live. Because the thing about heaven is it's actually a community too. You're not going to be in heaven alone. You get to be with all of us, so we might as well get the relationship right now. If you enjoyed this episode please be sure to like and subscribe to our content we are available on spotify apple podcasts and wherever you find your favorite podcasts the married now what podcast is a ministry of evergreen church in tulsa oklahoma and is meant to be a resource for in-depth bible study for couples striving to build their lives on the truth of god's word for more information and additional lessons please visit our website evergreenbc.org